0: I am Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is General Anthony Zinni, retired four-star U.S. Marine Corps General and former Commander-in-Chief of the United States Central Command. He also served as the United States Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and in missions to pakistan somalia eritrea and ethiopia so first of all i want to thank you general zini for taking the time sure my pleasure i really I really appreciate it just now a few minutes ago we i heard this i think it was rami khouri yes rami khouri when he's listed the ten points his ninth point was that one of the reasons that motivated or the instigated the Arab Spring is the public the Arab public disenchantment with their government for being unable to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, either peacefully or otherwise. And I could not disagree with him anymore, right. because I, and I wanted to ask sure. him the question. I wanted yes. to ask him, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tell me whether, you know, Mohammed um, Abu, Abu, Abu Ziz Yes. who committed self-immolation in Tunisia, he did not complain no. about Israeli-Palestinian yes. conflict. He was a university graduate yes. who was selling vegetables in the market with yes. no no hope, no opportunity. Yes. They want a the single flag, Israeli flag, burned in the uprising in Egypt, yes. and certainly not in Libya, and certainly not in Syria. So this is the kind of misperception that continue to prevail, and when you have scholars like of his caliber to continue to propagate these myths, in my view, makes it almost impossible for the people to understand or the government, because for the government, this is how it is, and and um, no effort as, as a result is being made. What, what's your take on this? You know, I yes.
1: Well, I think it's an oversimplification to yes. say it's one issue. Exactly. Uh, and I don't mean to play down the significance of the Israeli-Palestinian situation. but And this has gotten the United States in trouble, too, because as I mentioned in my talk, uh, President Bush saw the simple invasion of Iraq in terms of an evil dictator and the forces exactly, of democracy. Yeah. He didn't understand the, the Sunni-Shia implications, the Iranian or Persian-Arab implications, so, once again, if you if you oversimplify and you go to one of the issues and you stress that this is the most important, I think you miss the fact that there are so many dynamics taking place that affect stability, that cause instability in the region, and you're not going to change overnight by just resolving one of these. You know, you, exactly. it's too yeah. complex. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, you know, I was told... Maybe you know better that two years into the conflict in Iraq, President Bush asked one of his advisors, "What the heck are you guys talking about Sunni and Shiite? What the heck is the difference?" Yes. Yeah. Do you have you heard this before? I, I hadn't heard that, but it does. <laughs> it would
1: not surprise me, and and it's not not a criticism of President Bush, but I think it, you have to. I've spent 25 years in this part of the world, but basically, and. Uh, either as a diplomat, as a military leader, and even as a businessman, and every time I go out there, I learn something new. You learn a level of complexity. Absolutely, uh, I yeah. discovered in my military capacity. Uh, I compared it to peeling an onion back. You know, uh-huh. every time you uh-huh. went out, there was another layer you understood. That's the Middle East, <laughs> and so yeah, that's the Middle East. And and sometimes when you bring a very simple or Western viewpoint, and you see the Middle East through that viewpoint and you try to oversimplify or overgeneralize, you get into trouble because you don't understand the complexity. You don't understand the the nuances and the issues. And part of it is cultural because, you know, in my experience in the Middle East, unlike the way we're used to doing business, say, in Europe and in our own hemisphere, uh, things aren't always what they appear to be and things aren't always direct. You know, you have to draw out the nuances and you have to create relationships that allow you to understand it in more depth.
0: Yeah, and you know, interestingly enough, I 100% agree with you that this, uh, the wrong assessment, our inability to understand the culture, even the history. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we go back to the situation today in Iraq, there is a fight, of course, against ISIS. ISIS as an entity in Iraq and Syria, I believe, would be defeated militarily, but as we said yesterday, ideologically, it is probably we have a long way to go. But I wanted, you know, my feeling is about what what about the future of the Sunnis in Iraq? We know that the Kurds, I had in a conversation with Barazani about a year and a half ago, and he said, Alon, the moment we see ISIS is done with, we are going to declare independence. And when I tried to confirm that with a high member of the State Department, he said, Alon, we pretty much that's where the Kurds in Iraq are moving. My question, you know, my, my, I, w- I was saying, I don't believe that the, once ISIS is, as an entity is destroyed in Iraq, the syria is gonna go back to a normal life, subjugating himself to the Shia government, which has been abusing them and using them throughout from the Maliki government until now. And I think if the United States still does not think in those terms, that what is the future? You defeat ISIS. Exactly what you said yesterday. We are now ready to do. We are doing what we can do in order to defeat ISIS. But what's next? Yes. And what's next? We're going to be inheriting the same conflict between the Sunni and the Shia yes. in Iraq, which is ongoing, mind you, it never stopped. Right. But it's going to be far more acute, far more acute once ISIS is no longer in the picture as a major force.
1: And then the Sunni are going to ask themselves. What's next? I think it's time to think in different terms. If the effort is going to be to try to go to the status quo ante and go back to in Iraq and Syria like it looked before, I, th- I don't think it'll work uh, exactly. and for the reasons that you described. So you have to get into a discussion about what other potential models are there. I would give you an example of one that I would like to see on the table. I'm not sure it would work, but You know, what you see now in this sort, and somebody mentioned this yesterday, this sort of Westphalian nation-state structure was imposed by the British and the French after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. I don't think it ever really related to the facts on the ground. So maybe you have to rethink a more traditional structure. Uh, For example, the Emirates, the United Arab Emirates. There's seven Emirates. they, They agree on a federal system, you know, or a confederation in some way. So maybe you need to redesign this in sort of a form of an Emir- emirates. You may not call them that, but they may be autonomous, semi-autonomous regions under a very loose confederated, confederated yes, system. Yeah, and yeah. I would say that what's very important to this, everybody needs a sponsor. When you have small emirates and, and small entities, uh, the, we have sponsored the Kurds, the United yes, States, yes, which yes, have yes, given yeah. them protection. Uh, the Iranians are going to sponsor this year. You know, already. Yeah, and so already, maybe yeah, it falls to the Sunni Arab countries yeah. like UAE or Saudi Arabia or others to be the sponsor of the Sunni Emirates, if you will, and put that in quotes, in terms of economic support, in terms of, of assistance in, in what they need, and then some sort of acceptance on an international level of this structure. Uh, so maybe when, when ISIS is militarily defeated, and, and, and we are now back at the table, Maybe you need the United Nations represented from the region, and you need to think in more creative terms as to how this would be formed. You know, the last time this happened, the French and the British cut a deal. The United Nations came in and created a mandate that didn't work in in Palestine uh, and gave it to the British. So it would have to be more substantial, but maybe for a while, these and I'll use the term Emirates, which yeah, is for the sake yeah, of discussion. Yeah, yeah. These might be under a mandate of some sort, so initially, or you know, until a confederated system is established that's acceptable to everybody. So it may be Kurds, it may be Sunni, it may be Shia, it may be defined more along ethnic or religious lines. But it gives them a sense of protection and identity that doesn't get lost.
0: That is right. And I'd like to test my views on this. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much agree with you in principle. Mm -hmm. I personally relate the ongoing, or the continuing, I should say, sunni Shiite conflict in Iraq. I'm even beyond that. It will depend on how the Sunni future in Iraq will be resolved. That is, the conflict between... Iran and Saudi Arabia, pretty much for regional hegemony to some extent. This is going to be ongoing. That is, we know that Iran will have and will continue to have significant influence over the Shiite government in Iraq. The Saudis would like, they understand the facts of life. The Shiite are a majority, and probably that is going to be the case for a long time. One way they may satisfy themselves is by making sure or trying to work it out so that the Sunni in Iraq will have some kind of autonomous entity mm-hmm. loosely connected to a federal system. Mm-hmm. And so, if this is, is going to happen, and uh, I think one of the things that need to be you know, agreed upon is some kind of sharing revenue of oil, so that this, because mm-hmm. the Sunni entities, is, you know, the Sunnis exist basically live on three provinces that have no oil, as a matter of fact. And so, for them to get some form of autonomous rule, they're going to have to get their share, so quote-unquote, of oil revenue. That's probably going to be the sticking point that needs to be uh, to be discussed. But I see a resolution to the Sydney Iraqis will, may well mitigate the overall Sydney-Shiat conflict in the region. Do you see it the same way?
1: Uh, I think it will help. I certainly think that if, if you were to resolve that issue, it, it would go a long way. I think The danger I see in the future is with Iran now influencing Shia Arabs in Iraq and basically have established the first Shia Arab-led state. Right. Will they continue down the western side of the uh, Persian Gulf? In other words, will they make uh, trouble in the, in Tehran and the eastern provinces in in Bahrain and Kuwait, where there are significant Shia populations. So, you know, when the the Iraq Iran war took place, many people questioned whether the Shia Arabs in Iraq would fight Iran, but they did. They did. Their ethnicity, Iran. their yeah. Arab ethnicity, yeah. 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 trumped their religious.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, that didn't happen. Now, I mean, when when Saddam was overthrown, uh, obviously most of the resistance fought from inside Iran into Iraq, especially in the this, in this Basra and the areas in the south. So now comes the question, if you want to take a negative view of this, where the Iranians feel we've won a major victory here, we've crossed in, and, and of course that represents the most holy of the Shia sites, and they have control, and now the religion has trumped the ethnicity, will they continue to be provocative and, and create a greater problem? So. I don't think it's totally solved by resolving the Sunni's plight in that area. Uh, I mean, Iran maybe could back off and not do this, but that, I think, is a question you have to be careful with.
0: Yeah, I, no, I mean, there's no question. I'm, as I see it, a resolution to the future of the Sunni-Iraq is a must, in one form or another. They will not be able to go and be subjugated to a Shia government. We agree, I think, yes. in principle, on that. Yeah. Now, Iran ambitions in the region is not going to be curtailed, no. almost regardless. What sort of a resolution we're going to find in Iraq? Because Iran's ambition is to certainly maintain its influence over the Crescent from all the way from the Gulf to the Mediterranean. And the Saudis, to some extent, are also trying to create a, a parallel Crescent, as I see it, also going from the Gulf to the Mediterranean. And uh, that is will include 10 countries, the Gulf states, going into the Jordan into Israel uh, certainly into into Egypt etc there's the missing link the missing link is israeli-palestinian conflict the way I see it now one of the reason well, probably the main reason why the Saudis are today talking communicating with Israel very directly not indirectly and sharing intelligence sharing um, even it goes even beyond intelligence I understand that Israelis are helping in so many different ways including militarily I don't know if You can confirm that or not. Uh, So from their perspective, the Arab-Israeli conflict became secondary to their conflict with Iran. And they see Israel in the the front line that remains the significant power that, in fact, can check Iran in the region.
1: Well, I think that is the situation now. Okay. And that is the case now because there is a common threat yes but if that common threat is removed that issue will still come up this is not going to help you know in world war ii the allies of the united states were the british empire and we hated empires and and we were against them reestablishing empire but that was their goal in the outcome of the war our other ally was the soviet union and of course we hated communism but we had a greater threat with the nazis and the fascists so we were allies. Right. So right. be careful I think of drawing too much ab- about what this could lead to. This is a an arrangement now. And there's also economic arrangements I think between Egypt and Israel on in the Mediterranean where they've discovered uh, oil and there's a huge amount. Yeah. Huge and amount. so you know yes. these arrangements they're encouraging and any time you create an arrangement and you create a dialogue it helps you but I still think the resolution of the Israeli Palestinian situation if everything else is resolved, and I would add one to the pile beside the Sunni Shia and the and the others, and that's the economic conditions and the disenfranchisement of the youth there, because I think that's the primary reason, as you point out, they were in Tahrir Square or, you know, in exactly, the marketplaces. Exactly. That will come back up if these other... I agree with you, this isn't the primary problem now. But if everything else is resolved, this will come to the top again. Yeah,
0: Two to, to, to issues I, I, I want to raise. This. That is... I see it somewhat in longer term, that is, when it's going to be resolved. Will this Sunni-Shia conflict is going to be resolved anytime soon? I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I'm talking in terms, perhaps not decades, but certainly years. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Mm-hmm. It definitely will take years. But on the other hand, there is this collaboration between the Saudis, the Gulf state in general, and Israel, offer also a window of opportunity for the Israelis and the Palestinians to mitigate, to reach some kind of an agreement, because now the whole Arab world, for all intents and purposes, would be probably more than ever before leaning on the Palestinians to move forward in that regard in order to create that kind of, sort of a parallel crescent, that's going to be contiguous. I, I, that window of opportunity, don't you think there is a window now, and it's, perhaps it's time, I don't know the United States Obviously, as long as Netanyahu is in, 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 uh, in government, with this kind of coalition government, the likelihood that he will support it, uh, a Palestinian state is practically zero, as right. I see it. But don't you think uh, once Netanyahu is out of the picture, or well, hopefully soon, perhaps 2019, <laughs> there may a much wider window of opportunity to begin a real process in, in in solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
1: In my experience out there, involved in the process, is the Israelis, and I'm talking about the people, the Palestinians, and I'm talking about the people, and included the broader Arab world, have to reward the peacemaker. When Sadat signed the peace agreement, he was assassinated. When Rabin moved further than, maybe with the exception of, of Barak, but the closest to the terms of an agreement would be acceptable, he was assassinated. They, uh, when King Hussein uh, made the peace agreement, they tried to assassinate yes, him. Yes, yes. Each case, it was their own people who did this or tried to do it.
0: And that comes, I think, to the point I was trying to make yesterday, and that is the failure of the big government, both in Israel, in Palestine, among the, the Arab states, to prepare the public, that is, they did not engage the public in the process.
1: Yes, I agree. I, and I said that, you know, the ideas yeah. of a referendum yeah. on yeah. each of the issues yeah. to get the public. I had this discussion with Arafat, and he made a point in it. It was sort of indirect, but I got the message. He said, You will not walk behind my funeral like Sadat or my partner Rabin. And he also, when King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia and the others were offering they would accept the 67 borders, maybe with adjustments and ideas. He was adamant that they have to stand up and be beside him if there was any peace agreement, or else he is out there alone. And he is signing things, as I said yesterday, not just as a Palestinian leader, but he's signing things that have meaning to the Arab and Islamic world in terms of the religious implications and and other things, too. And so unless he has support and backing, and, and I would say this for the Israeli leader too, there needs to be something that acknowledges the steps they're taking. Well, where
0: the way the support comes, I mean, basically, as I see, the only country that can provide that kind of real support, backing, security, is going to
1: have to be the United States. Well, but, but the United States... It's not just security, though.
0: Times, how do you
1: Economics. A, uh, well, well can, if the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis and others say... If there is an agreement, we will provide economic support for the Palestinians. If the United States says if there is an agreement, we will provide economic support backing in addition to security for israelis and and, and Palestinians and others. You know uh, uh, well,
0: the Israelis
1: today they can
0: they can basically do without it. I mean. Well, uh, it, the, the, their, their, interest, their
1: interest may be more in security, which might yeah, mean military assistance yeah. or whatever. But you know, it's because they're, it's a very paranoid uh, environment. But let me give you an example of what I, where I felt the United States missed an opportunity, and the Israelis missed an opportunity. When Arafat died, they had an excellent chance, but they they had given up on the process. The Bush administration had given up. Sharon had given up. But when Abu Mazen came in, he didn't have the issue of a legacy. Yes, you know, yeah. Arafat had to have this legacy. That's he right. told me one time, he said, I am a general like you. I am the only undefeated Arab general. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so, it, it, fine, that's his legacy. But Abu Mazen was ready to negotiate. But what he lacked is Arafat had, had guns and Arafat had uh, popular support. Abu Mazen didn't have either. He didn't have money. He didn't have, secu- you know, military forces. And yeah, and no. But we could have helped. Yeah. The first thing I think the United States could have done is let's say, open up in Gaza. This is before Hamas won the election. Open up clinics, medical clinics, schools, and do it in the name of Abu Mazen. Abu Mazen came to the United States twice and met with Bush. All he got was a photo opportunity in the White House. Bush should have announced that you know to support him and to bolster him and to to prove to the Palestinian people he's working in their interests. We're going to provide these things. So in Gaza and the West Bank, we will invest in in medical facilities, things that the people can touch and feel. You know, not money. I was with I was with King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, and and I asked him to. Uh, Help support Abu Mazen because he was having tr- trouble with the meeting the payrolls of the people. And he, he laughed. He said, Abu Mazen's outside waiting to come in to ask me for... And he brought him <laughs> in and he said, Zinni says to help you with it. But so they were... Uh, prov- he was providing yeah. financial support. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, my feeling was if you give money to Fatah, if you give money to, to the Palestinian Authority, there would still be doubt on the street if that's going to make its way down to them. So instead of the United States providing funding you know, the Saudis can do that, and others provide things that the people can see and touch, do it in the name of that leadership, which is, enhances his authority to make a peace agreement.
0: This is exactly, I mean, you know, we alluded to that in the discussion yesterday. That is, uh, the money, when it, when the aid is provided, is going by and large to the government, to the authorities. Little of it is really filtering to the people themselves, and that is a uh, problem. I was just in the EU, and you're one of the main supporters of the Palestinian Authorities. Mm-hmm. I think the EU gives uh, something to the tune of, I was told, about a billion dollars a year between the various countries. Uh, where is that money going? Yes. Where is that money? Going? Yep. The corruption among, among yep. the Palestinian Authority is, is rampant. Everybody knows that. Yep. And so here you, you go again. When you have this kind of government, that is basically, he's watching for himself. He's terrified if he make, makes a move, somebody's gonna kill him. So we have a crisis of leadership then that transcends even the reality that the economic reality, security reality. is a crisis of leadership, both in Israel, in my view, as well as, as among the Palestinians and the whole Arab world.
1: You brought up a really good point that I think people missed yesterday, and it's about education. In the Palestinian territories, there are eight universities, many of which now have not been able to function because of maybe financial problems, security problems, and other issues. And it's a, it's a population that values education. And, and there is another place where outside investment can bolster the leadership exactly. directly. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, to reestablish those universities, help them uh, in what they need. and to be, Because obviously an educated uh, populace is going to be more supportive of peace efforts than maybe one that, as in many cases in, in Syria and elsewhere, we we're losing generations. I saw this in Somalia. They were not going to school. And In that case, you, you have a, a populist that moves on emotion and not on intelligence exactly, or intellect. Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, that is to me is one of the, the, the real malaise between Israelis and the Palestinians, that Israelis uh, do not offer the kind of education that opens the eyes of the kids. Mm-hmm that those Palestinians are not all terrorists, that they are the Palestinian nation, that sooner or later we're going to have to accommodate and have, yeah. We have coexist with them no matter what. And the Palestinians, I'm sure you've seen some of their textbooks.
1: I saw, I saw in Seeds of Peace the benefits of bringing the Israeli and Palestinian kids together. When I first sat in on my first session with the Seeds of Peace group, I thought they might have been from families that were, were in peace movements. But they actually had more people from hardline families, both Israelis and Palestinians. And these were teenagers that I was dealing with, so they work at all levels. And I asked the teenagers, you know, why, why are you here? You know, parents said, well, my parents didn't want me to come. And, you know, they would say things to me like, I want to see who this is, this person I'm supposed to hate. And so I asked them, they all, I sat like this in a the chair. They all sat around me. There were probably about 50 of them. And I said, well, how's this going? And they said, it's difficult. It's difficult, you know, we, but we are talking. Uh, and they had a lot of questions of me. The last comment was from one girl who said, I have a question for you, General Zinni. If we kids can figure this out and are working on it, why can't you adults do it?" Exactly. You know, exactly, so it, it, that was exactly. hope, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, I, as uh, occasionally I get invited to various universities to talk. And uh, inadvertently, as I see, I go to the class. I hear Arabic in one side, and I hear Hebrew on one side, the Arab of Palestinian other Arabs sitting in one area, the Israelis sitting in another area. And it is so glaringly and so visible. I refuse to start the conversation. <laughs> I say, guys, mingle first. <laughs> if you don't mingle, we're not gonna have a conversation. So that is I think the next generation that is if there is no education, that the gen- that not every Israeli is, is, a, is a soldier with a gun, and not every Palestinian is a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And they begin to see eye to eye. That's why I just want to share with you, I took this proposal to the EU because the French were trying to new initiative, and I said, you are going to waste your time, it's going to fail just the same like all previous initiatives. You have to start a different kind of process. Mm-hmm. That is, has a three-tier process, you know people to people, I mean, a range of issues. So because they've got to see each other as a human being. Yes. And if the Israeli government does not permit Israelis to go to the West Bank, how do they talk, how they dare speak about two-state solution? Mm -hmm. If the Palestinians cannot go to Israel and see how the Israelis live in Tel Aviv and in Haifa, how dare Abbas talk about two-state solution? So you need this kind of, you know, academic exchanges, visitors, women women groups, talking with one another. That is a prerequisite. Yeah. Finally, I think they came around. I, I convinced that I spoke to the French foreign minister. I said, don't start something like this unless you weigh carefully. That is, if you—if even if you get the leaders to agree, they won't be able to deliver the kind of peace that you are expecting. You have to have that kind of process yeah. first. Two years later then, while government to government can do a number of things, between themselves also symbolically and realistically to show that both people that they are actually moving mm-hmm. toward a solution because a solution cannot take place in one day and then present it to the public and the public expect it. Right. Yes. I just want to go back and if you have a few more minutes to the where we started, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Sinai-Shiat conflict yeah. and Iran. What is your view? I mean, I, I have a different take uh,
1: but I'd like to hear your take on the Iran deal. I think, first of all, you have to put the Iran deal in context. I I think one mistake that we may have made, uh, our diplomats, is to allow uh, maybe everybody around the region and in the United States to believe this was a first step toward a greater uh, dialogue and easing of tensions. That was a mistake because it built hope that wasn't necessarily in that. It should have been couched in this is a deal— involving nuclear weapons and preventing the spread and, and the proliferation. That's all it is. You know, when Reagan dealt with the, the Soviets on the START talks and the reduction of arms, uh, there was still an adversarial relationship. He did not make this seem like this was the beginning of some sort of something greater. It was an effort to make sure we, we tried to deal with the proliferation of nuclear weapons. So that was the first step. The second thing is when the deal was made they allowed people to say this is a good deal or bad deal but you can't make that decision until you're down the road three or four years from now so you know I use the example if you buy a car and if you ask people as they're walking out of the showroom the car did you just make a good deal or bad deal Well, they may say to you well I need to drive the car for a while to see how (laughs) it goes if I got a good deal or you know I have to check down the road to see what everybody else was selling the car for So this is analogous to that. Uh, We made the deal. If they comply with the deal, and, you know, we have stopped what was... They were moving toward a greater capacity to build a a weapon and weaponizing their material. That would have led to a military confrontation. So you stop the military confrontation. you got five other countries. You have the Germany plus the the, the Security Council sign up to it and and back it, Mm -hmm. so... On the face of it it was something that needed to be done and you're not going to put judgment on this and you know wait until five six years down the road uh,
0: exactly i think i think but the question i you know i've been uh, talk, thinking about writing about and that is will this deal eventually that is to, by the end of the period say 10 years will in fact iran give up its ambition i still call it an ambition to acquire nuclear weapons not because it wants to use it against any other country, because cannot use it against Israel and expect to live uh, right. after that, uh, such an attack. Right.
1: Or even uh, even uh, our allies in the yeah,
0: region. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Israel still have a second, I believe, major second strike capability that is not that can wipe out, in my view, all of, all of Iran, should they choose to do that. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but uh, my understanding... Well, I, would take,
1: that, I would even take it a step before that. I think if our intelligence demonstrated that they were actually weaponizing, yeah. there might be a preemptive.
0: It could of, be a preemptive. I mean, I mean,
1: I don't know. The, and who knows, there's a new yeah. administration, but I'm not so sure that we would accept. And by we, I mean maybe the West, Israel, yes. United States. We would accept them actually possessing a weaponized capability. Okay.
0: Let's let's say let's say they've been able to go along the road of North Korea. Uh, an assumption. As I see it, why Iran will not give up its nuclear ambition to acquire weapons is because it has other considerations. You know, it has genuine national security concern. You know, given that Pakistan has a nuclear power, has Afghanistan is still burning, uh, its ambition to become a regional hegemon that's going to enhance its posi- its position in the region. It-, it will deter any attack to change regime. For that matter, just like they see what happened in North Korea. So they have other considerations. For them, acquiring nuclear weapons is going to give them the status to be able to say that they, they are also they're neutralized to some extent. What Pakistan has is a Sunni, Arab, a Muslim country that has a nuclear weapon, and a Jewish state that has a nuclear weapon. So, from their perspective, having a weapon is going to neutralize these powers. But not necessarily using it against anyone should it be able to acquire i
1: I think the logic is wrong and i I would give the iranians maybe more credit to understand that first of all look at north korea what has nuclear weapons given them they are pariah they're isolated Uh, their economy and uh, they'll eventually implode i believe they can't sustain themselves they're basically a backward third world country except for nuclear weapons it's not brought them anything. They're not a hegemon.
0: But that's not the same case with Iran. Iran has resources, a lot more resources. Well, they I suffered
1: under the sanctions. They, if they repeat sanctions, if they would be under the same kind of sanctions regime as North Korea. And I don't think that that's acceptable to them. That's one of the reasons they signed a the deal. Look at Pakistan. Pakistan's reason for having nuclear weapons is because they have... The Kashmir It's the Kashmir issue, it's yeah. India. Yeah. You know, it, that's its reason for having it. It's paid a big price for that. Uh, I mean... It, but they
0: got away with it. Well... After a while, United States imposed some look, sanctions. Look
1: inside Pakistan. What did it get them economically, politically, in its relationship well, with Well, from
0: their perspective, as I see it, they prevented another war with India. I mean, they've gone to three wars over Kashmir. That stopped, when being both countries now in nuclear power. I think it did help in that regard. From At least when you talk to them, that's what they said. But,
1: but, but what is Iran trying to prevent? There's no Iranian version of India threatening them.
0: Well, Iran has the, has the region hegemony that they would like to control.
1: All There's I'm no one sa- that wants to control uh, Iran. Uh, yeah. Iran wants to control uh, the region.
0: That's Iran wants to control the region. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's... That's why I think for them to acquire a nuclear weapon is going to give them that edge.
1: I don't think
0: so. You know, you don't think so.
1: Because here's what happened. Let's take Egypt, let's take Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. All three would be capable of gaining their own nuclear capability. They don't do it because they feel they're under U.S. protection. yes. And that the Iranian threat also challenges Israel, who has a capability. So they're satisfied to build conventional capability, they don't see a need now. If Iran gets a weapon, they may recalculate. Reca- yes, no, and, and, and because they will want assurances yes. from us that they're under a nuclear, uh, our nuclear umbrella, or they may decide that I have to go. I have to achieve this too. And it's from everything we know, it's not that big a stretch.
0: But then, but then, uh, General Zinni, don't you think um, Iran, you know, before the deal took place, was very close to acquiring the kind of uh, uranium, the quantity and the quality they needed. Well,
1: they were close uh, in that respect, but not in the ability to weaponize it yet. But they, could, they would have gotten they it. They would
0: have been able to do yeah. that probably within a year, maybe, uh, maybe two. Maybe a couple of years. Maybe
1: a couple of years.
0: So they were moving in that direction. Well, yes, in, the, in terms of the material. Uh, yes. While denying everything, obviously. So again, you know, I, I still believe that it's not in their, out of their mind yet. Do you see it the same way? Yeah. Do you think they've basically forsaken that route? Well,
1: see, when you say they,
0: Iran, sure, right. no, With no, you're but, right.
1: but uh, I'm sure the Islamic Revolutionary Guard is not out of their mind. I think for the people, the population, oh, right. who will start receiving the benefits yeah. of the sanctions yeah. being lifted, they would like it to be out of their mind. Uh-huh. I mean, they don't; they would not see the advantages of having it in the in the terms that you know we're talking yeah. about. So you have aged clerics in charge now. So after and homunai, who comes in? Where's the power going to go? Will it stay with, the, you know, very conservative, religious? Will it become a little bit more secular? Because I think inherently, the population is secular, more yes. secular than it appears.
0: I know, I agree. And, and, absolutely. and
1: the Re- Islamic Revolutionary Guard has a control, but their interests may be more economic and personal gain than right. it is Theological in some, in some sense.
0: So you don't see that happening? Or, um,
1: I or, think lifting of the sanctions gives more power to the people. And uh-huh. the ability to go back to a sanctions regime just to gain nuclear weapons is going to be a difficult sell on the streets. Remember the Green Movement? Yes, yes. Uh, it failed for several reasons. One, obviously it wasn't organized well. It was a lot of disparate groups. To the fault of this administration in the United States, they didn't even give it vocal support, to, to demonstrate compassion and sympathy and support for the Green Movement. But it showed that the people will do something. Now, it was suppressed very harshly. Can that repeat itself? They see what has happened with the Arab Spring, you know, mixed results, but they saw that. So will they be willing, if the economy improves, if their relationships improve, if their ability to travel improves, are they going to be willing to accept going back? Or will they go into the streets? Or will they have their Tahrir Square? Yeah.
0: Then you know. Then why? Why, from your perspective? Israel, Saudi Arabia, vehemently objected to the deal. Well, what is their concern? Well, I mean, if everything you and I say now stands, yeah. Why? I, I'm sure Netanyahu could have read it the same way you are reading it. Yeah. Uh, perhaps even the Saudis well, could have just the same way.
1: Remember that that he had. Uh, I'm a and home and I talked about the destruction of Israel. And
0: But they know they didn't have that capability. It's rhetoric,
1: yes. You know, but still, when somebody, you know, look at North Korea and the United States. When you have uh, this crazy little guy that keeps talking about, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to create a capability to destroy the United States. I'm going to attack the United States. Will he do that? Probably no, not. But the
0: deal itself, however, like we said, and I agree with you, the deal itself postponed, if not prevented, Iran from acquiring weapons. Well, so know, what's wrong about it? From your perspective, Why why Netanyahu continues to say it was a bad, bad deal? Why does Saudi it's, continue it's to like say the old story, <laughs> uh, It's like the old
1: story of two guys that look like they want to fight each other. Uh-huh. And somebody says hold me back you know <laughs> you know I, I want to fight this guy I hate but don't let me do this so you know it, it's like what we say in the United States a good cop bad cop uh-huh. so in in many ways Israel can and they have a capability which I don't think they would ever use without the US of okay I, I agree. because it would be devastating in the region and would put us at risk too without us knowing about it so they have a role to play uh, you know it, it, it may be like South Korea and North Korea uh, and so that rhetoric may continue to be hot. They may continue to challenge it. But we don't know that if deep down inside they want these things to be tested to see if there is a dialogue that could be created, if there is an agreement that could be done. The, the big issue that the Israelis keep bringing up, which is an important part of this, is to ensure there is verification that the trust is built on some sort of objective standards right, that are going to be right, uh, right. adhered to, that there's a willingness of those that sign up to this to reinstate sanctions. You know, that is what they're. I think they're trying to ensure in this. But I think it's normal. It's, you know, where you see a regional hegemon that's right next door, it, it may be more difficult for them to get into an agreement process as somebody that's back behind that. Right. So there is a voice that they have that's important to be heard to make sure the deal is credible.
0: Well, maybe we should soon conclude. I yes. think you're taking enough of your time. Lunchtime. <laughs> Lunchtime. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to stop here. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank I think you it was wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Speaking thank with you, you it's thank a you. pleasure and honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.